We light this candle as a sign of peace in the coming light of Christ. As we await Christ's coming, we remember the promises of the prophets of a child who is to come, that he shall be called ruler of nations, Emmanuel, desire of nations, radiant dawn. We remember these promises even as we say, come Lord Jesus. As we see these candles lit, we anticipate the coming of the Christ child, whose light we celebrate even now. As we see the light of these candles, we wait with anticipation for the one who has come and who is yet to come. We remember Christ's promise that he will come again, even as we say, come, Lord Jesus. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine, that we may be But let your hand be upon the one at your right hand, the one whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will never turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call on your name. Restore us, O Lord, on Let your face shine as we may God of justice and peace, from the heavens you rain down mercy and kindness. 
that all on earth may stand in awe and wonder before your marvelous deeds. Raise our heads in expectation that we may yearn for the coming day of the Lord and stand without blame before your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns forever and ever. You may be seated. Grace and peace to you and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Both those of us gathered here in this sanctuary as well as everyone worshiping in other locations. We are glad and grateful to gather together in the name of the Lord. And because it is in the name of the Lord that we have gathered, our word of welcome is one with no qualifying adjectives whatsoever attached to it. Christ welcomes all, and so all are welcome here at the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. We'd like to ask everyone, members and guests alike, please to sign the friendship pad. You'll find that on your pew if you will sign your names and send it down and back again. We will have the advantage of each other's names at the conclusion of this service. And I invite you as well to a time of fellowship in Old Buttonwood Hall, which is just out this door to my right and down a short ramp after the service for time to gather together in our common life together. You will find there a, a, a refreshments prepared by our deacons, but also refreshments prepared by the children who attended the celebration service at 9 o'clock this morning. I am sure you will be able to recognize their handiwork in the artfully, directed, uh, artfully decorated cookies. I'd like to highlight a few things from the announcements portion of your bulletin. The first is to point out there's one session left of the Reverend Barbara Chapel's series, Beginning in Darkness. That is an online series, so you'll need to sign up for that link to be able to participate in it. It is also the tail end of the time you can get in your Christmas dedications. You'll see a note about that in your bulletin as well. And also on the back of your hymn insert, you will see a listing of all of our services of worship for this week to come. I'd like to highlight particularly the one that is closest to us, which is, of course, our service for the longest night, which takes place on Tuesday. The Christmas season is often a joyous time, but for those experiencing loss, it can be a difficult season as well. And so we certainly wish to surround those folks with our love and our prayers. So even if you are not yourself experiencing loss or sadness during this Advent season as we await Christmas, please do come to that service in solidarity with those who are experiencing those emotions as well. And then you'll note as well two services on Christmas Eve, and this last one's key, one service on Christmas Day here at 11 o'clock here in the sanctuary. It will be a Moravian love feast, which is code language for a second chance to sing all of your favorite hymns before we move away from this season. With all of these things noted, let us continue our worship now with our confession of sin. Knowing that we worship a God who is loving and just, let us turn to God in confession, first together and then in a time of silence. Gracious God, we confess there are times when faith is not easy. There are times when the claim of the gospel upon our lives is costly. There are times when we struggle with how to live with what your promises would elicit from us. Forgive us when in our living, we fail to do and be what you have called for from us. Forgive us when we cannot remember that it is you who have carried us through the years. 
and in forgiving us, give us encouragement that we may be strengthened in our faith and live out the calling you have given us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. God comes to us in dreams and visions, in prophecies and affirmations, in longing and in hope, in salvation through a little child. Claim this promise for yourself and let God's healing love fill you. Believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven.
Our first scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of Isaiah in the seventh chapter, starting at the tenth verse. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as shale or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary mortals that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. Our second reading comes from the letter to the community in Rome. Starting in the first chapter at the first verse. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be son of God with power according to the Spirit, of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name, including yourselves, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all God's beloved in Rome, who are called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our gospel lesson is taken from the gospel according to Matthew, the first verse beginning, the first chapter beginning at the 18th verse and continuing through the 25th. Continue to listen for the word of God to us this day. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife. 
but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almighty God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In Matthew's Gospel, the law matters. I want to be clear about that right up front. The law matters. But God's people matter more. That is what Jesus said. It's what Matthew said. It's what the other gospel writers said as well. And just so we don't miss it, Matthew starts right off saying it. And he goes on to say it a lot, actually. You remember that long genealogy at the start of Matthew's gospel narrative? It says that. There are a bunch of women listed in the genealogy in Matthew's gospel. That's our first clue that Matthew is up to something because in the Bible, women don't get listed in the genealogies. Biblical genealogies are just listings of the father, begat of, begat of, begat of. And into this genealogy, Matthew throws in a couple of prostitutes, an adulterer, and a foreign woman who seduced her dead husband's cousin. Women who struggled to make their way, but in their struggling, brought about the continuation of the house of Israel. That is all in the genealogy of Jesus, according to Matthew. Now, it's one thing to have such people in our families. We all have them. We just don't usually lead into conversation with it. Not Matthew, though. He brings Jesus' sketchy genealogy right out and smacks it down on the front porch. That genealogy comes immediately prior to the Annunciation to Joseph. We read the story just a minute ago, but like all Christmas stories, I wonder if we hear them so often and so easily that we risk missing the nuances of the stories. 
And one that is important to remember is that Joseph had decided to divorce Mary for her unexpected pregnancy. Now, I know that messes up our warm and lovely Christmas story, but it does seem like a reasonable response. She was having a baby. It wasn't his baby. And so Matthew wants us to know that Joseph had resolved, because he was a righteous man, to divorce Mary quietly. Now, under the law, which, remember, Matthew says is important, under the law, he could have gone to the temple and demanded satisfaction from his apparently unfaithful bride. Because, after all, to all appearances, she's the one who broke the rules. Presumably, they did everything the right way up to this point. Otherwise, Matthew wouldn't be telling us that Joseph was a righteous man. Mary was probably a very young bride. Most likely, following the custom of the day, they had tied the knot, and then she had gone back to live at her parents' house until she was old enough to be married. This practice truly seems barbaric to us, but in the time of Jesus, a girl's father had an obligation to see that she would be cared for, and so at the earliest possible time, a marriage would be arranged. And because it was assumed that she would then become a financial liability for her husband, a dowry would be negotiated, say, some money or some cattle, and then they would go down to the temple and formalize the arrangement. Without the rest of the Christmas story, it looks like Mary is the one who broke the rules. So if Joseph went down to the temple and demanded satisfaction, he could keep whatever had been legally negotiated between himself and Mary's family. There's just one problem. If he did that, Mary would probably be publicly executed, probably by stoning. That's what the law said. The law said it because somewhere way back when the rules made it into the book that said if there's any impurity in your community, you have to cut it out, cast it out, kill it, or else it might rub off on you. Righteousness is serious business. It's demanding. But Matthew tells us that Joseph resolved to divorce Mary quietly because he was a righteous man. The law is clear. You can Google Leviticus or Deuteronomy plus adultery and check it out. You don't have to take my word for it. In fact, I wish you would. I would love to ask all of you, encourage all of you, to familiarize yourselves with the Levitical purity codes. You will sleep without dreams, I promise you. But before you drift off to sleep, I want you to know one more thing about keeping the law, because Matthew was very likely Jewish himself and probably wrote for a Jewish audience. When Matthew presents the gospel, Jesus is the new Moses. He has come to deliver his people. When he preaches about the law, it's on top of a mountain evoking Sinai. There are five major teaching discourses in Matthew's gospel narrative corresponding with the five books of the Torah. 
Matthew's gospel takes great pains. You heard it in our lesson today. Great pains to show that Jesus is the continuation of what God has already promised, what God has always promised. Anytime you see an order to fulfill the prophets, that's a clue what's going on. And as a good Jew, writing for good Jews, Matthew would have known very well a couple of things about the Levitical and Deuteronomic law. That to live under the law is to keep the whole law. We are not permitted to pick and choose what portions of the law we wish to live under. And he would have known as well that the interpretation is as important as the law itself. There are a few academic distinctions we need to notice in order to bring some clarity to Joseph's rule-breaking, or at least so I hope. Joseph's righteousness meant that he stood under the law. He respected the law. Joseph was part of the temple community. In the Hebrew scriptures, there are three categories of scripture. The first and most important is the Torah. That is comprised of the first five books we find in our Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the law. The other two categories, just for informational purposes, are the Ketuvim and the Nevi'im, the writings and the prophets. And the law laid out for the Hebrew people how to live as good people as God's people, as ultimately Jewish people. God gave the law to the Israelites, to the Hebrews, as a gift. And the purpose of the gift was to create community, to create community by providing a distinctive way of life to God's people, distinct from everything that surrounded them. And Joseph was a good Jew, and he lived under the law. And to be a good Jew and to remain a good Jew, he knew what he had to do. Or at least so the Bible would seem to indicate. He could not keep her as his wife and remain righteous. The law was clear. And rather than take the money and run, he resolved that while he must divorce Mary, he would do it quietly. Divorce because he was righteous, quietly because he was kind. I sometimes feel, perhaps you do too, that true righteousness is getting lost in a sea of self-righteousness. Righteousness is being concerned with doing what is pleasing in the sight of God. It's a personal matter between oneself and one's God. Self-righteousness, on the other hand, is unconcerned with God's opinion of us and probably overly concerned with others' opinions of us. I went to a charity event once years ago with some members of my congregation and some folks, mutual friends, walked up, and one of my friends was making the introductions, and she added at the end of the introductions, oh, and he's my minister. Now, at the time, and this was in the South, at the time, I happened to be holding a glass of wine, 
and I watched that person's eyes travel from my face down to my hand holding the glass of wine and I wanted to say, hey, my eyes are up here because that's just annoying. Self-righteousness benefits no one. I don't know exactly how to purge self-righteousness from either the church's repertoire or our individual repertoire, but I have a suggested starting point. If at any point in thinking about the sin of others, we start feeling good about ourselves, then it's probably time to look at our own sin. The biggest problem with self-righteousness is that it gets in the way of and attempts to substitute itself for true righteousness. And that is a very big problem indeed. Righteousness is doing what is pleasing to God, and we presume to determine it for someone else at our peril. And righteousness is important. Every few years, it seems, politicians attempt to preach at us at great length about values and morality as if all of a sudden they've had an epiphany that these things are important. And values and morality are important. I don't want to be remembered as the preacher who said morality wasn't important. It is. But we do well to spend a whole lot less time worrying about other sin and more time worrying about our own. Because I don't want any of us, us as a community or us as individuals, to get sidetracked into a pool of self-righteousness. It is more important, far more important, that we concern ourselves with doing what is pleasing in the eyes of God. Matthew says that an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph. That's sort of the pivot point in this story where it turns. But let's be honest. Angels appearing in dreams is sort of a suspect method of communication in my book. If I am expected to believe that God is calling me to some sort of radical departure of everything I have been taught about faith and what it is to be a God-fearing person, what it is to be righteous, frankly, I'm going to want a bit of communication that could not as easily be attributed to, in the words of Ebenezer Scrooge, a bit of undigested beef. In fact, frankly, for something of this magnitude, I think I'd want it in writing, preferably notarized. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph. An angel of the Lord? An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, and all of a sudden he is willing to bend, if not outright break, God's law. What a change. But that's what the gospel does, you know. It brings changes. There's a meme circulating around social media that a lot of my clergy friends are sharing that holds up Joseph as a paradigm of biblical manhood because he followed Mary's calling. Now, Matthew is saying something with this story. 
the law is important, but people are more important. I don't know how to define righteousness in such a way that it sums up what is pleasing to God, and I think perhaps that is the point. Because when we try to nail God down too firmly to our viewpoint of what constitutes morality and righteousness, God has this annoying tendency to move because God doesn't like being nailed down. God is always the living God, the Holy One of Israel, and therefore God is unwilling to be defined by boxes that keep God neatly tied up to what society might expect from God. God doesn't like being nailed down because God is always acting on behalf of the poor and the downtrodden, the lonely and the despised. And did you know that God is the God of the despised? The Bible says so. People are generally despised for a handful of reasons. Frequently, it has to do with failing to adhere to what other people expect from them. And it frequently looks a lot like those women in Jesus' genealogy. And God, the God of Israel who gave the law that came to define what was community and culture, that God is the God of the despised. I love an old essay by Anne Lamott entitled, Why I Make Sam Go to Church. When she started going to church, Lamott was addicted to drugs and alcohol. By her own description, her life was a train wreck. And so she found herself irresistibly drawn to a place that could give peace. She found her way to a ramshackle church called St. Andrew Presbyterian. It had, in her words, a choir of five black women and a rather Amish-looking white man and a congregation of about 30 people who radiated warmth. And when she turned up pregnant and unmarried, it was this congregation that adopted her and her son. Now I know that may not sound like a big deal now, but when Lamont published this book of essays, it was in the 90s, and you may remember that unwed mothers sort of were a big deal then. This congregation resolved to care for her. Though the other members of the church were by no stretch wealthy, she would often, probably every week, get home from church to find her jacket pocket with a couple of twenties and a ten or two. It was like reverse pickpocketing. But it was one woman's gifts who stood out to her through the years, a woman named Mary Williams. She would put together little sandwich bags filled with dimes for Lamotte and her son and slip them into her pocket even though she needed them herself. And they kept on coming long after Lamotte became a successful and well-published author. Lamotte writes, Mary doesn't know that professionally I'm doing a lot better now. She doesn't know that I no longer really need people to slip me money. 
But what's so dazzling to me, what's so painful and poignant, poignant is that she doesn't bother with what I think she knows or doesn't know about my financial life. She just knows that I need another bag of dimes, and that is why I make Sam go to church. That sure does sound like righteousness to me. If we want to know what sort of people God wants us to be, we just need to look at the sort of people God uses. Look at who God uses in this world. And look at what they do. And consider how what they do causes them to be. Because there is no question that in the end, Joseph was a righteous man. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
us now together proclaim what we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He ascended into third day he rose again from the dead he ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of god the father almighty from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead i believe in the holy ghost the holy catholic church the communion of saints the forgiveness of sins the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting amen With gratitude for God's faithfulness and with thanksgiving for all that we have received, let us bring forth our gifts to God. Thank you. 
You may be seated. Come, Lord Jesus, bring your presence, bring your peace, bring your light. Comfort the sick, soothe the sorrowful, bind up the wounded. Calm our spirits, ease our burdens, mend our hearts. Come, Lord Jesus, bring your justice, bring your righteousness, bring your goodness. Reorder our priorities, direct our efforts, strengthen our resolve, break down walls, dismantle oppression, overthrow tyrants. Come, Lord Jesus, bring your love, bring your compassion, bring your mercy. Heal our divisions, seek out the lost. Restore the guilt-ridden, widen our embrace, teach us generosity, show us how to forgive. Come, Lord Jesus, bring your passions, bring your fire, bring your steadfastness, inspire our witness, motivate our mission, energize your church. Open our minds, extend our hands, overcome our lethargy. Come, Lord Jesus, bring your hope, your tenderness, your promise. Build up our common life. Hold us in our frustrations. Frighten our darkness. Release us. Renew us. Redeem us. Come, Lord Jesus, hear our cries, hear our whispers, hear our prayers. Now, with the confidence of the children of God, let us pray as Jesus taught, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Go in peace to live as righteous people. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace, both this day and forevermore. Amen.